Right, all right. It's Real Life, Real Equity with your hosts, Justin and Keisha Brooks. Welcome to the show. Our goal is to share with you real life examples of entrepreneurs who are winning in both life and business. As real estate investors, our mission is to model, educate, and inspire you to act by sharing easy to implement tools, ideas, and information to add more worth to your net worth, more cash to your cash flow, helping you achieve your goals in less time. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, everybody. Real Life Real Equity podcast. And so our guest today went from Silicon Valley to real estate. His career started as a designing microprocessor, and he eventually learned to raise capital and technology companies. He spent 25 years of his career in the high-tech industry. He was vice president of engineering at WaveSet as a developer of chips for wireless networks and chief techno officer at Applied Microcircuits Corporation, a Silicon Valley-based public company. He was founder and chief operating officer at Somerset Technologies. He also held several senior roles in marketing and engineering with Tundra Semiconductor. He's the author of the book, Magnetic Capital, and today he builds multi-million dollar apartment buildings as a real estate developer. His niche is building apartments in an infield urban setting for both domestic and international markets. He has helped investors shift their money from high risk to safe multifamily real estate assets so that they can preserve and grow their wealth. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome our guest today, Victor Manaz. Welcome to the show, Victor. Great to be here. Thanks for coming on with us. So let's get started with how we first met. I believe I met you at the Create Your Future Goals Retreat that was held in San Diego with the real estate guys. And like, that's right. Yes, like many of those events usually the spark or the magic happens after hours, you know, whether we meet at the bar or they, you know, they set up a scene where we can meet at a restaurant, but usually that's the time when you truly get to know people. And I was really amazed at your success. How did you go from being such a tech engineer to real estate? Let's hear your story. I was working at WaveSat. I was VP of engineering and we were building a new cellular network in Japan. I was literally flying back and forth to Tokyo every two weeks, and it was burning me out physically, mentally. It was just exhausting. And it was really at that point, you know, this was post-2008. The meltdown was well underway, and I really saw that as the opportunity of a lifetime. And at that point, I simply made the decision to take a hard left turn in my career and move out of the high-tech world into the world of real estate investing and developing full-time. Uh, was really a flash cut, you know, from one one to the other. And if I was to do it again, I probably would do it a little bit differently. I probably wouldn't have resigned my job quite so quickly. I would have extended my financial runway a little bit longer, longer because as you know, whatever you do in life, it often takes longer and costs twice as much money. And that was certainly the case for me. But what I brought to the, you know, what I brought to the table in real estate it was really some core skills because at the end of the day, I, I don't take a real estate view of things. I take more of a pure business view and I take the perspective that businesses are all the same. And in, in many respects, they are. You know, the fundamentals are the same. I mean, certainly running a fashion business versus a theater company are completely different, but, but the fundamentals are the same. You know, you've got to have revenue, you've got to have cash flow, you've got to have a product that people want. Uh, all of those things are universally true. You've got to have good fiscal management, all of those things. Right. So, so when when you do, then, you know, business can be kind of boiled down to just a, you know, basic set of principles. And 
And that's what I did when I moved into the world of real estate investing. Now, mind you, I made a lot of mistakes. Uh, you know, I lost a, a way more money than I than I wish I had. And uh, but that's part of the learning process. Exactly. Exactly. I totally agree with that. Um, as you go through the process, a lot of those failures is what helps you grow to be the person that you are today. So with that being said, tell me about the day that you realized that real estate was the thing, because that's, that's kind of one extreme going from tech to real estate. Why real estate versus another type of business? Well, from the perspective of the tech industry, you know, if, if I said to you that the minimum investment you need to do a new microchip is going to be about $50 million, and in maybe four or five years, I'll get you your money back. And maybe by year six, I'll make you a profit. Are you lining up for that investment? Probably not. I mean, most people aren't, but that is unfortunately the reality of that business. And I looked at other companies that had literally swung for the fences. They had managed to complete an IPO. They'd gone public. Um, And even then, many of those companies that had achieved tremendous success couldn't survive more than one or two technology generations without being absorbed by a major company. And so, you know, when I saw that, I said, you know, this is like saying I want to win the lottery when I grow up. I mean, it's 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 those types of odds that we're talking about. And then I looked at real estate and I said, you know what, there is no situation where you have a monopoly or a duopoly. Like, you know, today you've got Samsung and Apple, you've got uh, Facebook and Google, you've, you know, it's really, you've got a very small number of players that achieve dominance. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to see if there was another type of business where there wasn't that type of, uh, fierce dominant competition and real estate kept coming up over and over again. There are literally millions of very successful real estate investors worldwide. It hasn't been consolidated down to two or three major global players. Right. That was it. And so you have actually found a very unique niche when it comes to real estate. I've seen you develop on the line. And when I mean develop on the line, in some cities, there is an urban part of the city where one side is probably considered your rougher D class, if we would say. And then the other side might be B class and you kind of have learned to develop in that area and then kind of shift things. Tell us more about your projects in that perspective. Yeah, we call that strategy buy on the line, move the line. And it's exactly like you said, on one side of that line, and virtually every city in America has that line where on one side, you've got restaurants and coffee shops and, you know, the areas really become quite in demand. And then you go two blocks too far in the other direction and you're in the hood. And, you know, if if that boundary is a municipal boundary or a school district or, let's say, a freeway or a a railway line, it's going to be difficult to move that line. But if the line is arbitrary, as it is in many cities, literally block by block, you can literally buy just on the wrong side of that line. You're buying property for pennies on the dollar. And if you redevelop that line. Now, where are you going to get comps? You're going to, the only place to get comps for new product is in the good neighborhood next door. You're not going to find comps in the hood. So you've, you've got to, you know, you build product that's going to essentially expand that good neighborhood. 
and now you're playing a large developer's game on a small scale. Now, if you only do one or two, it's not necessarily enough for the marketplace to notice. But if you do five or 10 or 20, now the marketplace says, oh, I get it. The line has moved. Right. And you can create tremendous, tremendous value because you can buy property for 10 cents on the dollar, 20 cents on the dollar on the wrong side of the line, add value to it. And now you may not get 100% of the valuation you would in the hot neighborhood, but you'll probably get 95, maybe 97%. And, you know, we've done that. Um, you know, a dozen times at least just in Philadelphia. And it's been very, very successful. Yeah, I've seen that also where we currently are. That has happened where you've had a major developer come in. So where we are, they have what you call the truce divide, and it's the same concept. And now it's like that divide has been broken. You see, you know, different um, individuals on both sides of those lines just because of that structure that has came in and shifted what currently was known as possibly the hood to being a better neighborhood. So with that being said, we like to keep it real and transparent here on Real Life Real Equity. Give us a story um, where you felt like giving up through the process, you know, just keep it real, keep it transparent for us. Oh my goodness. You know, every project we run into has some kind of surprise, some kind of something that goes wrong. And even when you try and create projects that are carbon copies of each other, even then, you know, there'll be some kind of surprise. Uh, It's literally without fail. So it's not a question of are there going to be obstacles? Of course there will be. The question is, are you going to be able to overcome them? You know, the, the one that comes to mind in terms of having the greatest number of obstacles Sounds like it should have been a relatively straightforward project. This this was um, a, a workforce housing RV park that we built from scratch in uh, in Louisiana, literally in the shadow of some multi-billion-dollar oil and gas mega projects, uh, specifically to house the workers that are working, the literally the legions of workers that are um, constructing these plants, and. Uh, we had a number of obstacles, at least a dozen, where our neighbors decided they didn't want our project to exist. And so they literally threw up roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. And what should have taken us, you know, a few months to get into construction ended up taking close to a year to finally get building permits. And it was things like the neighbors wouldn't give us access to utilities, you know, in order to get access to, say, water or sewer, they would need to grant you an easement or a servitude to get to that sewer pipe or water pipe that's buried in the ground. And most property owners have no issue with that because, after all, you know, it is a public a public utility and they, too, have to grant uh, an easement to the utility for those utility lines to get on their property. Oh, wow. Uh, so they refuse to give us access to utilities. They refused to give us access to what was a public right-of-way, a city street, because when the city built the road, they put the roadbed in the wrong location. It was actually encroaching on the neighbor's property. And so they said, well, you know, this is not a uh, proper public right-of-way, so you don't have the right to use it. So they tried to even block access to our own property. They, all manner of things like this. They tried to block access to electricity. Their, the utility easement for the electricity was 
10 feet from our property line because it was drawn incorrectly by whoever drew it. And they simply said, no, you can't have power. And, you know, at a certain point we said, you know, we said... Like every roadblock. Every roadblock, you know. We said, well, all right, well, you know, a 10 megawatt diesel generator is about right. You might be downwind from us some days, but oh well. And eventually they relented and gave us access to electricity. Uh, So it was really just a matter of making the decision not to give up. There would have been plenty of points along the way where I think many people would have given up. But we simply decided that, you know, we've taken investors' money, failure is not an option, and uh, we're simply not giving up, period, full stop. Yeah. And, you know, those investors really depend on you. That's something that we're very familiar with. And just, you know, having to answer to them and letting them know, oh, by the way, um, we thought the project was going to be this amount of time. And so we're a little delayed because of this and having to explain yourself during the process is just an additional thing to go through. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. So let's talk about your book, Magnetic Capital. What got you to create that project? And then also let's dig into how you get investors to shift their money from what we consider as high risk into doing something more safe like multifamily. That's a great question. You know, it was interesting. I was uh, actually doing an interview with the real estate guys on, on their radio show. Uh, my business coach at the time listened to a pre-recording of that show, and his response was, he said, Victor, you've got a book in that interview. And I said, yeah, maybe, but I'm busy working on another book. And he said, no, 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 you've got to write this one. So I went home that night, and I outlined 13 chapters and looked at it, and I said, yeah, he's kind of right. Oh, wow. I did a little bit more research and found that there weren't that many books out there that really did a good job on how to raise capital. And I had learned how to raise money in the tech industry. That's where I really developed that skill. I, you know, raised, um, you know, $50 million in a private placement for one project, took one company public, did probably four or five mergers and acquisition projects in my career. And so every step along the way just got better and better at raising capital. When we went to acquire IBM's embedded microprocessor division, that too was a very significant capital raise. And what I discovered was that the process, when it was working well, had a number of elements that were in place. And when one or more of those elements were missing, it got extraordinarily difficult. It got really hard fast. Yeah. And it was really that recognition, that understanding that when those elements were in place, it was really quite straightforward. And and that was really the impetus for writing the book. And that's kind of the core, the framework of the book is those five principles that when they're present, raising money is actually fairly straightforward. I'll go into the five, what the five principles are. Yes, I was going to ask you, what are those five principles? Go ahead. So really the first principle is relationship. You know, a lot of people come into this business saying, how am I going to get capital? And they take a very utilitarian view of things. But the thing is, folks with money are, they're human beings. They're people that, you know, they want to invest in relationships. They don't want to be used. Nobody wants to be used. Right. So, right. So you want want to have a, a genuine relationship. And it doesn't mean you're going to do business with everybody. 
you get different things from different relationships. One relationship, you might get some good advice. Another relationship, you might get introductions. Another relationship, you might get some credibility in the marketplace. You may get access to opportunity. And yes, you may also get access to capital. You get different things from different relationships. You might simply get a friendship. I mean, who knew? Like, (laughs) wouldn't that be nice? So all these different things you can get from investing in relationships. And it really starts and ends there. It's got to be based on genuine relationship. If that is not at the core of this business, it doesn't work. It really doesn't. So that's principle number one. Principle number two is trust. And trust is a more complex psychological contract. It's not just, am I dealing with an honest person? It's things like, can I trust you to put together a good plan? Can I trust you to execute the plan? Can I trust you to hire the right people? Can I trust you to communicate in an open and transparent way? Can I trust you with my money? And on and on and on and on. And if any of those things are missing, it erodes the trust. It doesn't work. So it's a, it's a, it really starts with an understanding at a very deep level of what that psychological contract of trust looks like and making sure that you earn that trust. This isn't you know a check-the-box things to try and manipulate people into trusting you. It's you have to build that trust in a genuine manner. Exactly. So that's number two. Number three is results. What's your track record? And a lot of people might be starting out saying, well, if I don't have the track record, how am I going to raise capital? How am I going to raise capital if I can't get a track record? It's one of these um, circular arguments. And if, if it might be, but if it is, then I'd say, suggest you're looking at it the wrong way. Because at the end of the day, business is a team sport. I'll give you a very simple example. You know, we're building a project right now that's a fairly large project. It's 240 units. It's over a $40 million project. And some of the lenders, when they look at me, they say, Victor, well, you haven't done a $42 million multifamily project before. You don't have enough experience. So rather than have that question even come up, I brought someone into my team who has built 1,000 units of multifamily. And he's, he's my partner. So that question doesn't even come up. Right. Right. So it's, 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 it's not just your own personal track record. It's making sure that you've got the right track record within your team because it is a team sport. And a lot of people approach this from the point of view of, uh, well, it's all about me, but it's not. Because at the end of the day, people don't invest in the self-employed. They invest in businesses. And by definition, those are team sports. So you've got to have the right team. Exactly. So that's, so that's, uh, that's principle number three, results. number four is you've got to have a compelling opportunity. And this is where a lot of people start. This is in particular where a lot of the rookie investors start. They think of about, it's all about the deal. I've got a deal, I've got a deal. And I can tell you it's almost never about the deal. It's one of the necessary elements, but it's never just about the deal. It's about all those other things. And what might be compelling for you may not be compelling for the money. So you've got to understand what is that definition of beauty for the money. And if you don't have that, then it's not going to work. For one person, you know, uh, that definition of beauty might be medical office buildings. For someone else, it might be industrial warehouses of more than 40,000 square feet with a clear span 
of 24 feet, whatever it might be, it's going to be different for each investor. Right. And when you have that, then you have a shot at finally looking at the last element, which is what I call alignment. And that is matching up the goals for the money with the goals for your project. And if you don't have that perfect match, it's not going to work. So what do we mean by that? It's things like, what is the amount of money you're looking to put to work? If your investor has a, a $5 million minimum and you're looking to raise 200000 it's not going to work. It's, there's a mismatch between the amount of money. You've got to find the right size of investor for your project. What, how long are they willing to have their money tied up for? Are they looking to turn their money in six months or in five years? What is their target rate of return? What is the risk? What's the security? What's the safety? What's the control structure? What's the tax consequence? And so on. And you've got to have a pretty near perfect fit on all of those different elements. And if you don't have that perfect fit, then don't take the money because it's not going to work. Exactly. It's The analogy that I use is it's a little bit like a pair of shoes. You know, you might find the most beautiful pair of shoes and gosh, it's your lucky day they're on sale. But if they don't fit, you're not a buyer. It doesn't matter how beautiful they are or how deeply discounted they are. If they don't fit, you're not a buyer. When we talk about shoes, everybody gets it instantly. But when we talk about money, then people get all weird about it. It's exactly the same as shoes. It's exactly the same. If if you do those five things, raising money will be very straightforward. And so just for our audience, just so, to make sure that you guys got that. So the first principle was relationships, building relationships. That is probably number one crucial thing. It's just like dating. You're not going to just jump right into bed with somebody. You have to get to know them first, fill them out, see what they like, see what they don't like, and then touch their heart. That's something that you know, a mutual friend of ours says, Russell Gray. And then the next thing is building that trust. You want to make sure that they can trust you, you know, with whatever it is that you're doing, you have to be able to build that. So that way they can rely on you through the process. Um, And then the third principle that you mentioned was the results, that track record. I like how you put this because you said it's not always about you yourself having the experience, but adding the team members to your team that can build that experience for you. That right there was just like a golden nugget. If you didn't get any of those five principles, that would be one that really stands out besides building the relationship is the results, building the correct team. So that way you can go about that deal in the right way. And then the compelling opportunity. That is also big figuring out what it is that that investor really is wanting to place their money into because you have to have the right, the right match. Um, and then the last one that you mentioned um, was alignment. And alignment is something that Justin and I always talk about as far as making sure that everyone is on the same page. Um, like you said, with a pair of shoes, I have actually done that where my goal was to go buy a pair of shoes and then I try them on, they don't fit. And I'm like, why? They're, they're on sale, why? And I, you know, you're always like, well, if I wear them a certain way, it's the same way with money. People are so funny about trying to make a deal work 
And just because they think, oh, I can make the, the piece of the puzzle fit this way or the piece of the puzzle fit that way. And that's not always the case. You have to make sure that every single piece is in place in order for that deal to work. So those were some really great principles. And there's one thing that I do want to bring up when it comes to the relationships. Um, there's a particular person that is far beyond his uh, years. And this is someone that's close to you, Victor, and that's George Ross. And I'm just curious, I, I wouldn't go throughout this interview, but I wanted to know how did you and George meet? If you could just give us some type of insight as far as how you built that relationship. It's a fascinating story. And for the folks on the, on the line who don't know who George is, George was Mr. Trump's right-hand man for close to 37 years. He was uh, Fred Trump's attorney. Uh, and when Donald was 27 years old and wanted to do his very first project, George is the guy that basically carried him over the finish line. George is an extraordinary, extraordinary human being. He's an extraordinary attorney. And he he's just an amazing advisor. I met him back at an event in 2010, uh, following a, actually a Robert Kiyosaki event, and so this uh, this event was being held in Manhattan, and uh, the the organizer of the event had this harebrained idea of a monthly call with George, where George would be essentially providing advice, and they called it the Oracle Call, and it was I don't know fifty bucks a month or something, and I signed up immediately, and the guy who organized it kind of got tired of running it, so I took over running it, and. I've been talking to George, you know, once or twice a month now for the last nine years. And in that process, you develop a relationship. And so, uh, you know, I still have a monthly mastermind call with George. And it's absolutely extraordinary. He's 92 years old now. He is still sharp as can be. And, you know, much of the credit, frankly, of the Trump organization, I put in shoulder, I put in George's lap. He had the wisdom, the common sense, the fortitude, the negotiating skills to uh, to pull off a lot of these mega projects. And, you know, when we talk about things like 40 Wall Street or the um, Trump International Towers uh, at Columbus Circle, what used to be the old Gulf and Western building, or the uh, the Post Hotel in Washington D.C. George, even even recently, like that's a relatively new project. George negotiated that lease. You know, he was he was eighty nine years old when he did that. He negotiated that lease. That's extraordinary. That is, he is a sharp individual. I have the privilege of seeing him for the first time at the Secrets of Successful Syndication. And then also I had the opportunity from that to actually get on those monthly calls. So it is truly a privilege when you can gain the wisdom of someone who truly not just has the experience, but he's just a genuine person and he keeps it real. Like he's, he's truly a hundred percent about everything that he stands for. And that's what I truly like about him. Yeah, me too. And, you know, as soon as you bring up the name Trump, it evokes strong emotions, some for, some against. And, you know, I've never met Donald. Uh, I think he's a, a very complex, deeply flawed individual. I know his son, Eric, quite well. Eric's a great individual. Um, George is a great individual. I know a few other people in the organization that are great people as well. I don't think 
you rise to that level by being a total screw-up in every respect. He's done a few things right. He's also made some very serious mistakes, but um, but George is uh, is someone who I you know feel very very strongly has some has figured out how to live life how to balance things well uh he he lives with integrity and i I really appreciate that about george yeah that is that is a really deeply valued relationship so this is the time uh victor that um if there's something that you want to give our audience is there any type of product or service that you're wanting to give out or a way for people to connect with you well, I invite people to listen to the Real Estate Espresso podcast. This is a daily show, seven days a week. And whatever platform you listen to your favorite podcast on, whether it's on Google or Apple, or there's literally dozens and dozens of different podcasting platforms out there. It's literally on almost all of them. Uh, so it's called Real Estate Espresso Podcast. The weekday shows are five minutes, just me. And the weekend edition are interviews and they're a little bit longer, usually between 10 and 15 minutes. And would love to have you join us. The show is really focused on what what would be important to someone who's not the rookie investor, but maybe someone who's a little bit more advanced, maybe looking to get into development. And the feedback from the listeners has been awesome. And so love doing the show and love interacting with the listeners. Yes. And again, that is the Real Estate Espresso podcast um, hosted by Victor Manaz. I have actually tuned into that podcast and literally it's something which you can wrap up in just those five minutes. Um, Truly, he gives out some good golden nuggets that you can use and apply um, right now in your business, especially in real estate. And so as we uh, go ahead and wrap up our podcast today, if there were three things, three action steps, I know you gave those five key principles. It may not be three. Maybe there's one golden nugget that you would give to our audience that they could use right now today, Victor. What would that be? One of the things that I often see people getting stuck on, you know, whatever it is you want to do in life, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's to get fit at the gym, to learn a new skill, to doesn't matter. You need to do three things. Number one, and this is where most people focus, they focus on getting the knowledge. They'll go take a workshop, they'll take a class, they'll read a book, and they say, great, I've got the knowledge, I'm all set. And unfortunately, it's not true. You need the knowledge, no question. Right. But you also need, the second thing, is you need the emotional drive to make it happen. And connected with that, you need to eliminate the emotional obstacles that are preventing you from moving forward. Sometimes you hear people talk about mindset. And to me, that's a little bit too fluffy. You really got to really figure out what are the emotional obstacles that are preventing you from moving forward. And number three, and this is the most important, the one that's the most overlooked, is you've got to get in the right environment. It's not enough to have one out of three or two out of three. You've got to have all three. And if you're not hanging out, let's say if your goal is to become a real estate developer, but you don't know any real estate developers, you don't meet with them regularly, you don't hang out with them, well, chances are good you're not going to be successful as a real estate developer. You need to get in the environment. There's a reason why Olympic athletes from competing countries train together. There's a reason Right? All the figure skaters train at the same rink in Quebec 
or, or there's another one in Barrie, Ontario. The, the, all the elite figure skaters, they all train at the same rink, even though they compete, you know? The same thing. doesn't matter what it is you want to do in life. you got to get in the right environment. Wow, that's real good. I, I really like that. And so just to sum that, that up, those three nuggets, again, was gaining the knowledge. That is just the start of it. That's something that we also discussed. You know, you want to somehow to invest into your education on a consistent basis. Learning is something that you should consistently be trying to do, whether it's reading a book, going to a seminar. A lot of people use YouTube University. Continue to gain your knowledge, but then also emotional drive. That is real good. You said mindset is kind of fluffy, and I, I like that because we, we often talk about mindset and people talk about meditation, but you took it a step further by saying eliminating those emotional obstacles that get in the way. And I think that is truly a highlight that you want to take away from these three nuggets. And then the last one is to get into your environment. That is truly the key. Victor, thank you again for joining us here on Real Life Real Equity. We truly appreciate you taking the time out to talk with us today. Thank you so much. All right, man, that was a phenomenal interview with Victor today. God, so much wisdom dropped. If you didn't catch it, his five key principles, that was really impactful. The five key principles to raising capital. Again, relationships was number one. Yes. Uh, trust, results, a compelling opportunity, and alignment. He went into detail about how to ensure each one fits into the capital raising format. And right. I thought that was really interesting. When I first met Victor several years back, he had a very different philosophy than a lot of people that I've ever I've talked to in real estate. And so having that, those five key principles in writing in the form of magnetic capital was a phenomenal tool and resource to use for not only my own business, but all the people that he's affected in touch with the Magnetic Capital book. Exactly, exactly. And so if you're not uh, already subscribed to the Real Estate Espresso podcast, go do that now. Um, again, Real Estate Espresso podcast on all major platforms. It's a daily podcast and it's typically under like five or six minutes. Yeah. So you can. it's a shot of your dose of real estate every single day. It's amazing. Phenomenal Literally. content. And then on the weekends, uh, you get to hear a little bit longer, uh, 13 minutes. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's really good, uh, really good information. And it's really fast, really to the point. Um, uh, adrenaline shot, if you would, a caffeine shot, if you would, of information, all done very fast. Uh, so again, I want to thank you again, Victor, for uh, showing up on the podcast, being a great guest and sharing with us so freely the information that is in your head. And uh, Keisha and I uh, will sign off with that. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Real Life Real Equity Podcast. If you would like to ask the hosts a question or be exposed to our podcast audience, visit our website at realliferealequity.com and submit a request. Again, that's realliferealequity.com. Or send us an email at info at realliferealequity.com. Again, that's info at realliferealequity.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week right here on Real Life Real Equity Podcast.